The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Today I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians, if you would, 2 Corinthians. The title of this message is A Secret because this is the place where Paul in chapter 3 is going to answer the question that he asked in the previous chapter, and that is, who is adequate for these things? That is, adequate to fulfill the ministry that we are called to under this new covenant that we live in. I want to read the first six verses of chapter 3. If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, listen to these words. Are we beginning to commend ourselves, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you? Or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, and he's referring to the Ten Commandments, not on tablets of stone of human heart, but on human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The last time we were in 2 Corinthians, we looked at chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. We saw these four characteristics of the authentic Christian life under the new covenant, these four characteristics, life-dominating hopefulness. Remember, Paul is talking about what he was going through, which was quite troubling, but he says right in the midst of it, but thanks be to God. Because he understands that even in our worst times, God is at work in us and through us because we are his people. And then secondly, continual success, when he says that he always leads us in triumph in Christ. And the weird thing is, is in the context, he's talking about the fact that he was frustrated that he couldn't do what he wanted to do. And yet he says, I have this understanding as I walk with Christ. God continually leads us in triumph in Christ. And what he means by that, he continually accomplishes his purpose through us, even when it seems to us as though we've fallen off the end of the world. Third, lasting impact. And he talks about how the impact of the gospel is in the hearts of people. It's, uh, there's, there's life-changing effects to the gospel in the life of those who hear it and believe it. And then finally, blameless integrity, um, that he talks about how God's work in his life, as well as his work in those who heard the gospel from him, was to produce profound integrity uh, because of the effects of the gospel. Today, in these first three verses of this chapter I just read, you have a, a fifth characteristic, and that is undeniable reality undeniable reality. Now, what we mean by that is the gospel actually produces divine effects. It changes the heart. And he talks about that in these first three verses. And it's because he's, what's been happening is these, these critics of Paul have been telling the people at Corinth that he wasn't a true apostle. He wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't from Jerusalem. They came with letters from believers in Jerusalem to uh, introduce them, and, and Paul had no letters of commendation. And so Paul says, no, our letter of commendation is what the gospel has done in your hearts. And he says, it's undeniable. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes hearts and lives. Um, you've all heard that expression. We usually say the proof's in the pudding, but it's not, that's not really the saying. The saying is, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And the pudding here is not talking about dessert. It's talking about something like um, meatloaf. I only think of that because that was one of the first meals my wife made when we got married, and the proof of the meatloaf was in the eating. In other words, is there really something happening here? And what Paul is going to say here is that he doesn't need letters of recommendation. What he has is real observable effects of the gospel that they have experienced that these Corinthians, and if you remember the story of the gospel going to Corinth is found in Acts 18 where Paul goes and preaches there and immediately he thinks he's going to be thrown into jail as he had been in the previous cities. 
But instead, the Lord appears to him and says, I want you to stay here. I don't want you to fear. I want you to continue to preach the gospel. I have many people in this city. And he saved a group of people and which formed the church at Corinth. And so he says, we don't need letters of recommendation. What we point to is the effects of the gospel in the lives of others. There's another example of this that you're probably real familiar with because I mentioned it so much. But First Thessalonians, if you'll turn there just a second, just a few books further back in the New Testament. First Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and reminding them of what the gospel produced in their hearts when they believed it. And so he says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. In other words, when I came and preached the gospel, me and those who, who were with me, that the gospel didn't come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we became or proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, here's what he's saying is It's one thing to claim great things about yourself, which is always a mistake, but we can claim great things about the gospel because it's the gospel that is life-transforming. It's Christ who's life-transforming, and the gospel is about Christ. And when when people come to hear the message of Christ and they believe on Christ, they enter into this relationship with Christ, he produces changes in the hearts. And what he says here is, when the gospel came to you, It came in the demonstration of power. And he's not talking necessarily about miracles. He's talking about the miracle of changed hearts. He's talking about how the gospel, when it penetrates the heart, when it goes all the way down deep in the heart and a person comes to realize the truth of this message of salvation in Christ by faith alone, that it's life transforming. Because wherever Christ goes... He makes changes in people. Wherever he, whatever heart he enters through faith, change takes place, transformation. And so Paul said, Paul, what Paul's talking about there is this process that they could see observable reality in Paul and his companions' lives. Because he says, you know what kind of men we were, we became while we were with you in your midst for your sake. In other words, they saw the power of the gospel at work in Paul's life while he was with them. And the expression means he was living right there in the midst of them. He couldn't hide. He couldn't put on a front. He wasn't on all the time, as they say. He was being himself. And what they saw was the power of Jesus Christ at work in the heart and life of the Apostle Paul and his companions who were with him. And he says, not only that, this same gospel began to change you. And it's really something, the background of this was as soon as they believed the gospel, they began to experience persecution. Some of them were to lose relationships, perhaps jobs, status in the community. It cost them a great deal. But what happened was it was life transforming this gospel work in their hearts. And he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. How's that? Well, if you remember the story of Jesus, because he obeyed the Father's word, it cost him his life. Following, you know, throughout the the gospel accounts, it tells us that Jesus walked in the power of the Spirit in obedience to the Father. Where did that get him? Well, it got him to Gethsemane. It got him to the cross on Golgotha. You see, it brought him to the place where he was willing to lay down his life for us. And if you remember that last night, as he is struggling in the garden, as he prays to the Father, and he's anticipating what it's going to be like for him to be put in this position of being separated from the Father for the first time throughout all the ages, that the Father was going to turn his back on the Son. And so he prays and he says, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me without me drinking it. And the cup was a picture of the wrath of God being poured out upon him in our place. But then he says, but not my will, not what I desire, but what you desire. And he went to the cross for us. Why? Because of his obedience to the word of God. And the same thing in the life of the apostle Paul. Paul paid a heavy price 
to follow Christ in obedience. He obeyed the word of God, and he did what God called him to do. And the effects were he suffered persecution. He was in jail more than anybody you've ever met. Almost every city that he went to, he ended up in jail. And when you went to jail in a Roman, the Roman Empire in the first century, it wasn't pleasant. They didn't have big screen TVs. They didn't have an exercise room. What they had was stocks, and they had whips, and they treated you mercilessly. And that's what he experienced. And he continued to be willing to suffer for the gospel. And then Paul says, and you became imitators of us, of Christ and of me, because they experienced the same thing. They believed the gospel, and immediately they began to be persecuted. They begin to experience what it's like to be vilified simply because they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's kind of a resurgence of persecution in China because the church in China is getting so big so quickly. Well, it's been over a long period of time, but it's there are now. This is what the newscasters in America are saying, the reason for this, the reporter who gave this story. They're back to doing what they did some years ago, where they go and they just take a big tractor, a bulldozer, and they knock down church buildings. Imagine if you were to drive by that building that's been standing for so long down here that we want to finish and and worship in. Imagine if you drove by there one morning and the whole thing was just flattened. And that's what they experience. And this reporter says they think the reason is, is because the number of Christians has gotten bigger than the number of people in the Communist Party in China. And so they are seen as a threat. In fact, he went, this reporter went and and, uh, actually interviewed people in a house church or a family church, and he asked them questions and uh, listened to their answers. It was all in this story. One of the questions he asked is, how many of you have been in prison because of your faith? Every single person in the room raised their hands. Every one of them. I've done this before where I ask people, have you, how many here have ever suffered for the gospel? I've never had anybody lift their hand. Because we live in an environment where we are free to believe the gospel. We're considered fools by many people, but we're free to believe the gospel, the good news concerning Christ. The good news of God's purpose to send his son into the world and to bring salvation to us through him. And his plan that ultimately that Jesus Christ, every knee is going to bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in the meantime, those who, dis- those who come to follow Christ can experience real persecution. That's what was happening uh, with the people at Thessalonica. But you see, what, what was the result of that was, he goes on to say, as you became an example to everyone around you, Macedonia and Achaia, in other words, that'd be like saying, in all of California... I've heard the how that you are an example of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. This is, di- this is very different than the prosperity gospel. It's wonderful when God g- gives prosperity to his people of various kinds. That's a wonderful thing. But, but that's not the glorious thing. The glorious thing is when we are willing to lay down our lives because we have come to value Christ above all things. That chapter you just heard read, Isaiah 66, is kind of overwhelming in a sense because of all the judgment. What's going on is, this is the close, the last chapter in the book of Isaiah. And as they look forward, as, as Isaiah looks forward prophetically, he knows the whole nation is going into captivity. And the reason they're going into Babylonian captivity is because they have loved the gods of their neighbors, their idols, They're little idols that you can carry around that can't talk or walk or move. And yet they preferred them over the true and living God that had created them as a nation to worship him. And so he's telling them this is the end. What he's describing there is the end result of worshiping false gods instead of the true and living God. And so in this case, uh, when... What, what the Thessalonians saw was reality in the life of Paul. It's so much easier to prepare a sermon than it is to prepare your life. I know it's scarier. There's a lot of people, if you said, hey, we want you to preach next week, 
it would be really scary to stand before people, but that's nothing in comparison to having a life prepared by the Holy Spirit so that the people who know you recognize there's really something different about this person, and I wish I had it. I read this testimony this last week from a guy who uh, found himself in the hospital, uh, 18 years old, and the guy in the bed next to him was an older man who happened to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. And he said, I, uh, in that, those days that I was there in that hospital room, and he wasn't a, this guy was not a believer at this time, he said, I had never experienced someone loving me the way he manifested love towards me. Because this guy was wasted and wiped out, and his life was, looked like it was coming to an end at 18 years old. And for the first time, he met somebody because of the love of Christ who actually cared about him enough to tell him the glorious truth of salvation in Christ and to communicate to him in a very real way that God loved him. Even though he was worthless in the eyes of the world, that God actually loved him. And he manifested that truth in the way that he talked to him and treated him. This guy eventually, not long after that, came to faith in Christ, and now he's a preacher of the gospel. Well, what is this reality that they saw in Paul and they began to experience in their life? Well, it's the reality of the new covenant life. Let me just, let me just try to summarize what a covenant is. Probably in our language, we would tend to use something like contract. But the best example of what a covenant is is the marriage covenant. When a couple come together in marriage and they commit their lives to one another, you remember the vows you made when you got married? Uh, <clears throat> it'd probably be a good, a good thing for you to do is go back and get those vows. Maybe you could get a hold of them and put them on a sheet of paper and hang them on the wall. Remember what you've promised each other. That's a covenant. And what the covenant does, it gives you the stipulations of how you are to live together, how you are to treat one another. And some of you have lived long enough that some of you wives actually said you were going to obey, <coughs> obey your husband. Isn't that crazy? And you husband said that you would love her and cherish her and protect her and lead her. That's a covenant. It, that, those stipulations control life together. That's what they're meant to do. And that's the way all covenants were. Some of you are familiar with some of the biblical covenants. There are several, like the Abrahamic covenant, when God entered into covenant with Abraham. And he, and he gave him all these, these stipulations and made all these promises. Well, what Paul does in this, in this context is he puts all of life under one of two covenants. These one of two covenants that he talks about is the new covenant and the old covenant. Now, I'm over, there's a little bit of an oversimplification here, but then I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But there are two covenants at work in human life, the old and the new. That's the way Paul is describing it here. First of all, the new covenant life is nothing coming from me and everything coming from God. That's what he's going to say in the next few verses. Now, think about that a second. The new covenant is nothing coming from me and everything coming from God. I love that <laughs> because that's the best covenant you could possibly enter into with the living God is nothing coming from you and everything coming from God. And there's some of us here, that's the only, I, I should, I'm being facetious. There's none of us here who need any other kind of covenant life with God. We need this kind of covenant where it all, it all comes from God and nothing coming from me in the fulfilling of these promises and these stipulations. The old covenant, he describes as everything coming from me and nothing coming from God. And then I want to make a quick disclaimer, and that is, uh, is this a distortion of the old covenant? Yes, it is. The old covenant is the Mosaic covenant. It's the covenant the people of Israel lived under when they were in the land. And so this way of describing it is a distortion, but it's the way that Israel had come to live under that old covenant. They thought that they 
were able to fulfill the obligations that they had before God, and therefore God was obligated to bless them. And they began to actually think that the reason that God's blessings came to them was because of their performance. In Romans 10.3, it says they began to try to establish their own righteousness through the law. And believe me, that's a huge mistake. It's like Paul says in one place, haven't you read the law? To the Galatians, you want to go under the law, the Mosaic law? Have you read the law? Do you know what those stipulations are? You see, under this new covenant that we are under, Christ has accomplished our obligation before God. Here's the way it would work in making a covenant in the, in the ancient world, is if you entered into a covenant with somebody, where it's a business covenant, a national covenant. For example, we entered into a covenant with Iran, and some of you are still mad about it, but we entered into this covenant with Iran, and there are certain stipulations that both countries have to carry out. And marriage is a covenant, and business dealings sometimes are, are covenants, contracts. The, I'm going to do this, I promise to do this, I promise to do this, and you promise to do this, and these are the consequences if we don't. When they made a covenant in the ancient world, here's how they did it. Two people came together. It's, it's pictured for us in God making his covenant with Abraham. And so what would happen is they would take some animals. And please don't be offended by this, but they would cut these animals in half. Can you imagine that? They take these animals, sheep and various animals, they would kill them and they would cut them in half and they would spread them out and then the two men would walk between those carcasses and say, if I don't keep the promises of this covenant, you can do this to me. You can fillet me. I don't think you'd be entering into too many contracts. You know, you can go buy a new car, uh, 0% interest, 60 months. But what if they told you, if you miss a payment, we're coming after you and we're going to take your life. We got a guy who calls on people who are late in their payments and he's going to bump you off. So you'd be a little slower to enter those contracts, wouldn't you? Here's the new covenant. Jesus steps up. Well, this is exactly what God did with Abraham. He put Abraham to sleep. And God walked through the animals and he said, I'm the one who's going to be faithful to this covenant. And he has been. In fact, part of the covenant was sending Jesus Christ into the world. The new covenant that we enter into by faith, we enter into a covenant where the other party has already paid the penalty of a broken covenant. Are you going to break the covenant? Yes. You are. You are going to be unfaithful to this covenant at different times. You say, wow, that's a pessimistic attitude. Uh, You know, you live as long as I do, and you, you find out that everybody's like you. Yeah, they can break the covenant. But Jesus has already paid for a broken covenant. And when you believe on Christ, what you're doing is you're entering into a covenant with God where God says, my son has fulfilled the covenant for you. Isn't that wonderful? So you enter this relationship with God where Christ has already stood in my place and fulfilled the covenant. He obeyed the Father to the point of self-sacrifice in your place. And so when you, you enter into this covenant by faith... You believe the gospel, the good news about this covenant, and you enter in by faith. You have a standing before God that he describes like this. He says, when you enter in by faith, what I'm going to do is I'm going to clothe you in the righteousness of my son. Clothed in his righteousness. That's justification. God has declared us to be absolutely right with him when we put faith in Christ. That's the covenant. That's the new covenant. Now, the question in, now we want to look at something that flows out of this, and the question is found in 2.16, where Paul says, who is adequate for these things? Who's adequate to do this ministry of a new covenant minister, which is all of us? This is talking about average Christians like all of us. How are you ever going to fulfill your call 
to the ministry of the gospel. And you say, I haven't been called to ministry. Yes, you have. If you've put faith in Christ, you have been placed into the ministry. The word ministry means to serve. And when you come to faith in Christ, he brings you in and he gives you a significant task, a significant role to play, and that is to be a representative, just like Paul was. And so when they saw his life, what they saw was the reality of life in the new covenant. And that's the thing that impresses, impressed you when, you when the gospel came to you, was seeing someone who actually had believed the gospel and their life showed it. Remember that little song you sang in Sunday school, if you're happy and you know it, uh, tell your face or whatever it is, I can't remember. If you're saved and you know it. Yeah, clap your hands. That's easier than, <laughs> that's, that's easier than if you're saved and you know it, then walk with him. It costs God the most precious thing. This is what Romans 8 says. He gave the most precious thing in order to save you. That was his son. That's what he paid in order to bring you into this covenant with him. And he says, now, what I want you to do is live in this covenant, in this relationship with me. Now, the, uh, the answer to this question uh, of who is adequate for these things, who's adequate to carry out this ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of the gospel, by living according to the, this covenant relationship you have with God. Uh, well, here's what he says. He says in verses 5 and 6, it's actually 4 through 6 is, is his answer, not that we are adequate in ourselves. Can anybody say amen? <laughs> not that we are adequate in, adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Our adequacy is from God. You think, how in the world can I possibly live in this new covenant? I'm afraid to open my mouth. It's as though if somebody were to even ask me, are you a Christian? Would I even be able to say boldly, yes. I came to faith in Christ 20 years ago, five years ago, three years ago, yesterday. So he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. It's all of God. You see, what it means to be a Christian is to begin to experience the presence and work and glory of God in your life. It's not something you earn. It's not something that you can make happen. It's something that God must do. He has to manifest his presence in your life. And he's perfectly capable of doing that. And and then he says, uh, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter. He's talking about the the words written on tablets of stone. And he's not demeaning the law. What he's saying is, the law, what the Ten Commandments do is they tell you what you ought to do. And so I could stand up here today and read you the Ten Commandments or maybe read to you the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. And right away that puts you under stress. Because the letter, he says, he made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So this new covenant relationship is having the Spirit come and live within you. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's not, I heard people quote this verse and they think it's the Bible. The Bible kills, so quit spending all your time reading the Bible and teaching the Bible. You need the Holy Ghost. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that the letter, the law, kills because the law tells you what you ought to be and what you ought to do. But the Holy Spirit produces the desire to obey and the power to obey. And so as a, as a person who now has the Holy Spirit, when you read the commandments of God, they're coming from the one who died for you. And they're, great, they're very motivating. And so when a Christian husband uh, hears the word of Paul in, 1 Corinthians, or in Ephesians 5, 
It says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. They don't say, yeah, you don't know my wife. They realize that the person who's commanding this through Paul is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to love your wife the way I love the church and gave myself up for her. And so this life in the covenant is something that comes from God. How did Paul learn this? I want to show you this process. It's real brief, but how did Paul learn to live in the new covenant? Because he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He lived under the law. He lived under the letter. He had a good reputation as a law keeper. He had a status among the Jews. And he had done exactly what Romans 10.3 says. He had come to live his life to establish his own righteousness by keeping the law. He was very proud of himself. Kind of like Christians, uh, you know, all these people that aren't here, and well, some of them are at the retreat, and some of them are elsewhere. And if you were to ask them, why weren't you in church on Sunday? It would probably, they'd probably be a little crestfallen if they thought you were, you were judging them because they didn't show up on a rainy day to church. And maybe the rapture happened. Maybe the partial rapture is really true. But the point is, is that uh, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a legalist. And yet God taught him to live under the new covenant of grace. And notice what happened. In Damascus, I, I think I might have you turn to these sections. In, in Acts 9 is where you have the conversion account of Paul, where Paul comes to faith in Christ. And you know it's very dramatic. Paul is on, on the road to Damascus to, to arrest Christians because he hated Christ and he hated Christians. Jesus had died on the cross, had been raised, went back to the Father, and now they're preaching this gospel that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the apostle Paul was insulted by that. What a stupid idea that you actually believe this, this common man who had no credentials whatsoever, no royalty, and you're putting your faith in him, and so he's going to arrest these people that are preaching this message and throwing them in prison. What happened was, as you know, he's on the way to, to Damascus, and Jesus confronts him on the road. And Jesus says this really odd thing to him. He says, why are you pers- persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asked a good question. Who are you? Lord. (laughs) And he tells him who he is. And he realizes that the people he's going to persecute are actually followers of this this glorious Christ who's confronted him on the road. And he, he comes to faith, but he's blinded. And so they lead him to this house where he is staying. And it says in verse 19, and he took food. They, he goes to this house where a Christian is going to take care of him. And he knows who he is. And so he's a little bit nervous about it. But he, because this guy, this, this Saul, has the authority to arrest Christians and put them in jail. But now he needs their help. And so it says he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples. That is the followers of Jesus in Damascus. I want you to think about this a minute. He's, he's come to Damascus to arrest Christians and to throw them into jail, into prison, and have some of them executed. And it says he's there for several days with the disciples who he was coming to arrest. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Now, he was arresting them because he said, this is a lie. They're saying that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's not true. He's not the Messiah. And now he's with him, and he's proclaiming this message. So he proclaims the message, it says in verse 21, and, the, and those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who is in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But he's preaching Christ. He's preaching that Jesus is the Christ. But then what happens is, He leaves uh, Damascus, and he goes to Arabia. Now, we find this out over in Galatians chapter 1. We'll turn there a little bit. But it tells us there that he was there for a little while, and then he goes to Arabia. And all we know is that Jesus met him, and Jesus taught him. So there was a three-year period, not just in Arabia, but when he first got saved until he is actually accepted by the apostles for three years. Jesus was teaching him, and he was teaching him about the new covenant, not by giving him a whole bunch of overhead transparencies or or a keynote uh, presentation, but by talking to him and by revealing himself to him. And so Paul goes to Arabia probably for about a year, and he's with Christ. 
He's with Christ in that desert place. That's kind of interesting because the parallel is that the the other apostles who were followers of Jesus during his life were with him for three and a half years. And Paul tells us for three years he was being taught by the Lord Jesus. And so he goes to Arabia, and then he comes back. And when he comes back, in verse 22, this is the change in his message. It says, but Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus, those who were opposing the Christians, by, provide, by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Before he was proclaiming it, after spending this time with Jesus, he started proving it. He knew how to be convincing about this glorious truth, that Jesus really is the Christ. And then he goes to, well, he gets in trouble. He's a a basket case now because they put him in a basket and lower him down the the wall so he can escape because they're threatening, there's a plot to kill him. They got really mad. This is our hero. This is like conservatives and Donald Trump. He's come to tell people off and tell them what's really true about him. And... Then he, tur- he turns, and he starts being gentle and nice and loving. And that's what happened to Paul. And so Paul, all of a sudden, is, is proclaiming the truth about Jesus. And so these Jews are, have a plot to kill him. And so what they do is they lower him down the wall in a basket. And then he goes to Jerusalem. And if we were to go to these passages, he goes to Jerusalem, and nobody knows him, and they're afraid of him, and they don't want to talk to him. Because they don't know this is, a, this is just a ploy to find out who they are so that he can arrest them. And then, I, in fact, I want you to turn to Galatians for just a second. Um, the reason this is in different places, these are just bits and pieces that Paul tells us about his life during this period of time. And in Galatians 1, if you turn there, Paul is telling his story about how God saved him and how he changed him. And in verse 15, it's, he says, And when God... But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through the grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. I didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And he comes back from Damascus. But the interesting thing is... um, while he's in Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 22, he's telling this story later. He says, when I was in Jerusalem the first time, I was in the temple praying, and Jesus appeared to me. And Jesus says to him, get this, Jesus says to him, they're not going to hear you. They're not going to believe you. They're not going to trust you. Why? Because Jesus had a plan for his life. And it wasn't to be accepted by the apostles yet. And so what does he tell him? He says, go home. Go home, because I'm going to send you to the Gentiles who are far away. In other words, Jesus is still in the process of discipling him. I, I think what's important about this is we're, we, we know that we are called to make disciples, but we also know that Jesus is the only one who can actually do this work in your heart and life. And so our discipleship effort shouldn't be that I want you to be just like me. That I, I, want, I want to give you all my, theological, my theology notes so that you believe exactly the same thing that I do. But it's rather to be exposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so Jesus says, I want you to go back home. So he's back in Tarsus. And while he's in Tarsus, in Acts chapter 11, we're told that Barnabas... Remember Barnabas? Barnabas heard about what was happening in this city of Antioch up above Jerusalem, that the gospel was being preached by ordinary guys, ordinary people, and people were getting saved. And these Gentiles become, that was the first time they actually preached the gospel straight to Gentiles. And these Gentiles are getting saved. And so they send Barnabas up there to find out what's going on. And so he goes up to Antioch, and he discovers there's a work going on here. The Spirit of God is saving people, and they are true disciples of Jesus. And so what Barnabas does after surveying the whole issue, he decides to go get Paul, because he knew Paul. He had actually helped Paul when he first came to faith in Christ. And Barnabas, his name means uh, exhorter, encourager, and he was. And so he goes, and he gets Paul, Saul, Paul. And he says, come with me to Antioch. 
There's a great word going there. So he goes to Antioch. And in Antioch is where he is launched into a worldwide ministry of sharing the gospel. He goes out from there. Three, you know the three missionary trips? You've got those in your maps in the back of your Bible. Paul's three missionary trips. What were those? That was Paul going out from Antioch to preach the gospel to the rest of the world. You see, what happened was Jesus taught him how to live in the new covenant. How to live in this covenant is that it all comes from God and none from me. And that's why Paul ends up saying this very thing. Uh, he, when he learned this new covenant living, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, we'll eventually get there, but he says, if I boast, if I have to boast, because they're telling him, we want you to give us, you know, it'd be like somebody asked you to send us a picture so we can put it on the brochure. I had that happen not too long ago, and I'm going to go speak at this thing, and they wanted me to send them a picture. And uh, they, sent, they sent an email to Ryan and said, the only picture we could find is this one at the school. Is there a better picture of him? So Ryan forwards the email to me. Is there a better picture? No. All these pictures, looks, they look exactly like me. That's the problem. I did find a picture the other day when I was about 35, and I had dark hair, head full of hair, and I looked 35 instead of however old I look now. But there's no good pictures because they, look, they actually look like me. Well, this was the deal with Paul. They wanted Paul to do a little bragging. They wanted him to give them some stuff they could put on a brochure. This is a sought-after international speaker and, and uh, dis- an apostle. And Paul says, to, in response, he says to them, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Putting that on your brochure? He has these tendencies. He gets really angry when people don't agree with him or or this and this and this. Can you imagine that? I mean, most of us us want to put our best foot forward, right? I don't want you to see all the stuff that's weak and bad about me, but that's what Paul says. I'll boast in what pertains to my weaknesses. For God and the Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. I don't have to make up a story. God knows I'm telling the truth. So I'm not going to make up some story that's not true. So he has learned new covenant living. It's all from God and none from me. And then this new covenant living, I just wanted to make this point. New covenant living must be lived in the spirit as it's described in Romans chapter 8. So in closing, I want you to turn to Romans 8. Because this is such a wonderful description of what uh, New Covenant living really is. It's life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of it, but when you came to faith in Christ, you were taken out of the flesh, that is just who you are in yourself, and you were transported into the Spirit. And now you live in the Spirit. It's a brand new culture. If you've ever lived in another culture, if you've ever moved from the culture you grew up in and then you moved and lived in another culture, you know how difficult it is to learn how to live in a different culture. And this is what happens with Christians. We get transformed into the spirit and we don't know how to live in the spirit. We continue to live according to the principles that we always lived by before, which Paul describes as life in the flesh. And so if you look at Romans chapter 8, I'm just going to read the first few verses. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. Are you afraid of being audited by the IRS? What if, they, what if they said, we want you to pull out your last 10 years and we want to make sure you have verification of all these expenses that you have listed? He says, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Uh, amazingly. But then he goes and explains why. Because he says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What he's just talked about in the previous chapter is life under the law trying to establish my own righteousness before God and how I always fall short when I do that. And he says now the difference is in Christ, the law of the spirit of life, that is the power of the Holy Spirit opening your eyes, opening your heart, and motivating you to live in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, as as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement or the righteous requirement, the righteous requirement that God has 
for us that's, that's demonstrated in the law. Never lie. Never slander. I mean, think about even the, the Ten Commandments. You say, I believe those. I believe that, that the Ten Commandments are a picture of righteousness. But in the New Covenant, we start this way. Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. And so he says, so that the, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, life in the Spirit. Living with this understanding that it's all of God. I never have any bragging rights as I live the Christian life. It's all God. And then he says, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. That is, I like to, I, uh, recently I did a, in fact, it was Tony's son, I did the wedding, and they kicked back the, the I filled out this, the, I signed the license application, all that, or the, I mean the marriage certificate, and they kicked it back. And what happened was, is that I signed it and the ink in the pen was sketchy. And so I wrote over it, my signature over it, and they said it was modified. And so they wanted me to come in and talk to them. Well, somebody told me they want to see proof that you're ordained. I found in my closet at the office, I found way back in the back of the closet, this big framed ordination certificate. I mean, the frame is this big. So I just grabbed the frame, threw it in my trunk. I thought that's what they were going to do. I got down there. I went in first to find out. It wasn't that at all. They just wanted to know why, was, why did it look like that. And I just said, well, the pin didn't write. And so she just had me sign a new one, and it went right through. But I thought they were going to question me. Are you really ordained? Do you have the right to do a wedding ceremony? Well, when the mindset of the flesh is looking at our own qualifications, our own power, our own record. It's, it is just a fact. I've, lived in, I've been involved in the church for my whole life, which is a long time, and uh, uh, I know for sure that Christians often fall into this pattern of not wanting other Christians to see how flawed they are and how sinful they really are. And so they hide it. And they only let people see what looks like to them to be. I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to blow your stack in front of everybody or anything like that. I'm just saying the flesh won't profit you anything. It doesn't matter how good you get at looking and dressing and talking like a Christian. It's Christ. And this covenant we live in, it's a covenant in which God provides everything and I can provide nothing for which God would say, oh, come on into heaven because you've performed so well. And then he goes on, he says, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, when I'm living according to the flesh, I can't please God. That's what you heard in, in Isaiah 66. These people were the people of God and they thought they were doing really good and they weren't, they were idolaters. But then he says this, however, however, you, believer, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, it really means since indeed the spirit dwells in you. You're in the spirit now. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. If you ever hear a teaching that says you need a second blessing to get the spirit, understand that is not biblical. It's not true. And if it were true, you're a dead man or a dead woman. <laughs> There's no hope of you living the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. And he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't even belong to Christ. If Christ is in you, through the, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of, of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. This ain't the resurrection, I don't believe. There may be some who take that way. I take this to be the Spirit is in you, and now He will produce life in you as you live for Christ. Supernatural life. He'll give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So life in the Spirit is this new covenant life. 
It's living according to the new covenant, trusting all of my trust is in Christ and not in me. And, and every once in a while, isn't, isn't it amazing how God does this? Every once in a while, he puts you through something that reminds you of that truth. And you go back to believing that truth instead of the lie that you can hear, the lies that you hear floating through the air in the bigger church world. That somebody says, hey, you ought to take this course. This will transform your life. You will become just like Jesus. No, you won't. You are clothed in Jesus, and that's why the Father has declared you to be absolutely righteous with him. But don't stop trusting Jesus and start trusting yourself. Our adequacy is in Christ, and he's given you everything you need for life and godliness as you walk in faith in him. And the good news is that if you don't know Christ, and if you've never followed Christ, you can turn to him in faith. You can turn to him in faith and put your trust in him and take your trust off of yourself. That's the greatest transfer in all the world. When you start thinking about your relationship with the living God who created you for himself and say, how could I ever be right with that God that I could never be because of what I am and who I am and all I've done? Yes, you can because he'll clothe you in his son. He'll give you righteousness. And then he'll begin to work that righteousness in your heart as you move forward. Let me pray for you right now. Our Father, we bow our hearts before you. We thank you for the new covenant. Every time we come to the Lord's table and we celebrate the fact that we are in the new covenant, we are so grateful, so grateful, Father, that you can take people like us And in the new covenant, bring us into this relationship, which is all coming from you and nothing from ourselves. And so you've placed in us, as Jesus said in John 7, you've put within us the Holy Spirit who produces rivers of living water that flow out of us. So we pray that our our dependence, our trust, would not be in ourselves, but would be in the Lord Jesus Christ and this new covenant that he has established that we have entered into by faith. We thank you for this righteous standing we have before you, and we pray that we could live out of this glorious truth. We could walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, and that we would no longer be trying to establish our own righteousness but we would rest and live out of this glorious righteousness that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.